The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's appropriation, you... you lose all the controls that actually everybody, including conservatives, really liked around what PEPFAR is and what it drives for. Or, and this is what Representative Smith is proposing, you could do a one-year reauthorization. You have to remember that these plans, these programs are long-term, they're ongoing, they're getting increasingly focused on interventions that can achieve epidemic control, can really bring HIV, epidemic levels of HIV to an end, and that a one-year authorization disrupts a proven planning cycle it shakes confidence in, in country governments who are trying to figure out whether the U.S. is in it for the long haul or not. And it also really undermines our ability to leverage and work with investments in laboratory infrastructure, in sequencing and diagnostics that support PEPFAR but, and HIV, but also really support pandemic preparedness and outbreak response. I'm Anna Hickey, Associate Editor of Communications for Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 22nd, 2023. In 2003, President Bush created the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR, and in the 20 years since, the program has been credited with saving over 25 million lives in stabilizing health systems around the world. This fall, the program will expire if Congress doesn't act, putting millions of people at risk of losing access to HIV-AIDS treatment. I sat down with Emily Bass, a writer and activist who has spent more than 20 years writing about and working on HIV-AIDS. In 2021, she wrote To End a Plague, a book on America's war on AIDS in Africa. We discussed how PEPFAR has changed over the past two decades, why it is at risk of expiring this fall, and what the expiration would mean for the millions of people who depend on it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 22nd, 2023, the PEPFAR reauthorization battle with Emily Bass. To start off our discussion about PEPFAR, I think it would be helpful to have a brief overview of the program and you know, a quick synopsis of why it was enacted two decades ago. Sure. So you have to travel back in time and, and remember that in 2003, when PEPFAR was, was proposed by President George W. Bush in his State of the Union address in January of that year, at that time, it had been seven years since a class of drugs called protease inhibitors were identified. And this, the protease inhibitors, when they were used in combination with other medi- medications, turned HIV from 
really a death sentence for most people that acquired the infection into a chronic manageable condition. It, it transformed what had been up until that point, a global pandemic where it didn't matter where you lived, your, your race, your ethnicity, your gender, it, there were no drugs that were really effective up until that point for HIV itself. And this, this combination antiretroviral treatment transformed the landscape for HIV. It transformed the lives of people living with HIV. So then you start to see differences based on where you live and who you are. And if you're in a wealthy nation and a wealthy person or an insured person or a person with, with access to different kinds of privileges and services in wealthy nations, you can get antiretrovirals and your life changes and you are, you are no longer anticipating untimely death. If you're not, in, you don't have access to wealth or healthcare. If you're in a low income or low resource setting, you don't have access to those drugs. And so in 2003, there have been set, there, seven years have passed of really witnessing sort of grotesque inequities in access to antiretrovirals. And you have at that moment fewer than 50,000 people in sub Saharan Africa with HIV on antiretrovirals. And you have millions of people in need, millions of people in need at that moment. And, and there has been a lot of action, a lot of activism, a lot of pushing by a lot of bold, transformative allies in Congress, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, in the activist movement, um, work by activists in Thailand and Brazil and South Africa and the U.S., demanding an end to this, this global inequity in access to antiretrovirals. And Bush in 2003, in his State of the Union, takes everybody by surprise, including those activists that I just named, and, and says that he wants to take on AIDS in Africa with a really bold treatment-focused program. And that's a big difference. So other initiatives had said, you know, treatment's too complex, people in Africa aren't going to be able to take it. And Bush says, no, I want to do something big and transformative. And he launches what becomes known as the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which sets a target of putting 2 million people on treatment in the first five years. And that target is met and exceeded. Um, he asks for um, a $5 billion budget over five years. And he, he, with those words and with the program that's subsequently enacted in legislation in really record time, um, just a few months later, he changes the course of the HIV epidemic, not alone, but this U.S. action is really, really transformative, both in how the U.S. understands what it's able to do in the context of pandemics and for the pandemic itself. Yeah, so it sounds like before the program, things were relatively dire, especially as you're talking about in Africa. I know in like 2002, the Botswana president said that they were threatened with extinction because of the high rates of HIV in that country. So on the ground in Africa, I know you had spent some time in Uganda. What has been the impact of the program? What is the program doing to help the people? Is it just antiretroviral treatments or are there other aspects that it has been doing? Sure. So, you know, PEPFAR works hand in hand with other funding sources, including the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria, which was stood up a year before PEPFAR. And it's important to reflect that there is a constellation of, of resources. PEPFAR is a bilateral program. So it's government, U.S. government driven, and it engages in partnerships and grants in, in a select set of countries. 
Global Fund it funds more countries and receives requests for proposals. Um, and it's a multilateral. And we also are the largest contributor to the Global Fund. With PEPFAR, which is what I'm going to focus on a little bit still, you had the ability, when PEPFAR started in 2003, there was very, very little idea of how you actually set up adult ambulatory lifelong treatment programs in countries that don't have those for other things, for diabetes, for hypertension, um, where you really, in many cases, have hospitals, you have some immunization programs, you have maternity wards, maternal child health, you don't have an adult ambulatory care program. What PEPFAR was able to do, and I moved to Uganda in 2004 to watch the PEPFAR program grow, was to work with local organizations that were supportive of the government, but not always government facilities, though increasingly over the years they became government partners, worked with local partners, local community groups to figure out how to build a health service that hadn't existed before. So it's not just putting the pills on the shelves, it was really figuring out how do we provide a service? What did the staff need to know? How do we support respect? How do we decrease stigma? How do we decrease discrimination? How do we support women disclosing to their partners when that may increase their risk of violence? How do we ensure that young people can come in? How do we respect and uphold the rights of LGBTQI plus folks? How do we really engage with a disease that's both a virus and, and has a whole constellation of social and structural factors around it that make it so lethal? And the PEPFAR program really took on all of that, right? It took on pieces of HIV prevention, it took on treatment, and it changed the way that health services were delivered in many countries. It sounds like it has been a very holistic program in trying to tackle the health systems in the region and stabilizing them. So now that we've set the groundwork on what PEPFAR is, the core of the discussion is going to be about why PEPFAR is at risk of expiring this year. So I was wondering if you could talk about the reauthorization process that has existed in the past and what's been going on this year that's put it at risk of expiring. Sure. So PEPFAR was enacted as a five-year program. It was authorized by Congress in an act that was passed in 2023. And it's really important, first of all, just to understand how unusual that is. So we don't stand up most of our overseas development, most of our foreign assistance with the kind of legislation that, that stood up PEPFAR, which specified where the program sits. It put the targets in place. It specified the kinds of oversight that Congress would have. So it really said, this is the structure, this is the strategy, and this is who, um, this is how you're going to know it's working. We don't do that for most other foreign aid. And that was intentional. That was the, the product of the work of a team guided by Dr. Tony Fauci with support from um, Dr. Mark Dybul, and then a core group of West Wing staffers, Gary Edson, Jay Lefkowitz, um, among them Karen Silverberg, Josh Bolton, who were supporting the president and really, really kind of kicking the tires on what you had to have in place to make sure that uh, investment of that magnitude, remember it's the largest disease-specific global health investment in world history, but in American history, as well, what's going to make it deliver? So that legislation from the from the get go is incredibly important because it it actually does what it sets out to do. It puts PEPFAR in the State Department. It specifies who's going to be in charge, which is an ambassador level position. It sets the targets, which the program then meets, and the program reports back to Congress. And even congressmen who are conservative, who historically are very skeptical of foreign aid, Jesse Helms said it was you know a rat hole 
really have confidence that this program is doing what it says it's doing. And that confidence is borne out in the reauthorization that happened four subsequent times under two different presidents, so under Obama and under President Trump, and that's really important. This program is is reauthorized for five years each time with a structure and the the budget you know intact and the and the overall functioning of it intact. And that has been really a product of of a bipartisan support. Congress really understanding that this is a program that is delivering, that is worth supporting, and many congressmen, including um, Representative Chris Smith, who has been the source of a lot of the criticism that's emerged in the last couple of months, um, compare it to the Marshall Plan, to the post-war Marshall Plan. So really the success of this program is something that's been widely, widely um, celebrated by Congress people on both sides of the aisle, and that that has been reflected in reauthorization, again, including under President Donald Trump, right? Reauthorization traditionally has been a feel-good moment. It's, you know, in, in the midst of everything else, this is a program that everyone gets behind. Vice President Mike Pence spoke really warmly about it at, on World AIDS Day, right around reauthorization, and that's not where we are now. And in previous reauthorizations, has the legislation been changed from what it was originally, or do they tend to just reauthorize it as it was in 2003? It's a great question. So so one thing to know that's germane to what I'm going to talk about a little bit next, which is the problems that have current that are currently posing really an existential threat to the program, is that Bush makes his State of the Union, President George W. Bush makes his, his State of the Union address on January 28th, 2000, 2003. Within 48 hours, maybe even within 24 hours, the question is coming from conservatives about whether this program is going to pay for abortion, right? It is the it is among the first issues that is raised. Jay Lefkowitz, who I mentioned earlier, is getting phone calls. He's on the phone over the weekend. There's a huge amount of concern that this program is going to become a slush fund, right, for, for abortion. And, and the question then is, should the legislation for this program, should a condition of Republican support and conservative support for this program be the inclusion of what at that point is known as the Mexico City policy, which is a presidential executive order that, that is essentially activated by Republicans and then rescinded by Democrats that prohibits the use of, up until the Trump administration prohibited the use of U.S. foreign assistance dollars going to family planning programs, prohibited speech referral for provision of or advocacy for abortion. And there's a real question about whether or not the the Mexico City policy should be written into the PEPFAR legislation. Now, keep in mind that the the Helms Amendment already prohibits the use of U.S. foreign assistance dollars for abortion. So there's no need to legislate Mexico City. And the the deal that's made that gets PEPFAR originally passed in 2003 with the endorsement of Representative Chris Smith, who's going to come up later, is no, we are not going to legislate the Mexico City policy, which will have far-reaching effects beyond this PEPFAR program. We're not going to do it, first of all, because there are other protections in the U.S. law that prevent the use of bilateral funds, like the ones that were going to be allocated for PEPFAR, for paying for speech, provision, abortion services, etc., so there's already protections, if that's your concern. And what Bush realizes when he talks to his, when he gets advice from his advisors, is that if you 
legislate the gag rule, some of the providers with the with the greatest ability to reach people in need are going to be excluded from receiving funding. And he wants to save lives and he wants to get people on treatment. And he is not going to put in an unnecessary provision. If your concern really is simply that you don't want these funds to be used for abortion, that's taken care of already. He's not going to put in this provision to eliminate qualified providers. So PEPFAR does not exist. It is it is it exists solely because of a deal brokered around abortion in the earliest hours after it was announced. I, I don't want to say solely, but it exists. This deal is fundamental to its its existence. So with that in mind, understanding that, what that also means is that the legislation really steers clear of sexual reproductive health and rights, which is widely understood or believed to be believed, incorrectly believed to be code for abortion and abortion services by many conservative groups. And in the 2008 reauthorization, where you have um, a Democratic majority, there is an attempt by feminists, by sexual reproductive health and rights advocates to change the legislation to make it more expansive and more inclusive, specifically with regard to provision of SRHR services, sexual reproductive health and rights, which again is not about providing abortion, but is about understanding that women living with, with HIV and women at risk of HIV do not have the means to go to one clinic for their HIV or their HIV prevention and another clinic for their contraception or their family planning or their maternal health care that you really need to offer comprehensive support, right? And that ultimately is, is that attempt fails, right? It's, it's seen as too politically risky. You're going to jeopardize the, the Congress, the conservative support. And the, the legislation really doesn't change around sexual and reproductive health and rights. It changes a little bit around treatment targets, but, but fundamentally, this program has been reauthorized four times, almost completely intact. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing, 
Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So what has changed in the past few months that has put PEPFAR at risk of expiring? Is there talk of just changing the statutory language of the bill, or do they want to just really revamp the whole thing? Right. So so up until... May of this year, it looked like we were on on a path to a clean reauthorization, which is what's happened every year since 2008. And I should say that 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 in the past there were there were some some provisions in the 2003 bill, including around PEPFAR funds recipients having to sign um, an anti-prostitution pledge. There were some odious provisions in the first bill that that did get addressed in, in subsequent legislation 
or odious to to folks that that didn't interpret the the anti prostitution pledge as solely about sex trafficking, human trafficking. So, clean reauthorization has been the the rule of the day for the last three reauthorizations. We're at the fourth. So so 2008, 2013, 2018. Clean reauthorizations essentially a cut paste from the from the previous reauthorization, uh, previous legislative language, and that is in part because this is a, a fragile balance of conservative and liberal support, Republicans and, and Democrats. It's a strange bedfellows coalition that believes in PEPFAR, and if you open it up, if you open the legislation up, a range of things could happen and be suggested that that might make it very difficult to preserve the the core bones and the the enormous investment of this really really successful investment and let's just remember that by by now you know at the point that this reauthorization is coming up pepfar has has supported putting 20 million people on antiretrovirals um over the course of its existence it has saved 25 million lives five and a half million babies have been born hiv free and it's contributed to a global progress this isn't just pepfar where Three quarters of the people with HIV globally who need antiretrovirals are on them. So the world looks really different because PEPFAR has been part of it and because of other things that have been underway. So there's a huge amount of success that has come from this clean pattern of clean reauthorization. And there has been no evidence ever, because it hasn't happened, that this program is paying for abortions, right? So we think we're on a path to clean reauthorization. Things are looking good. This is a feel-good thing. There's a great PEPFAR at 20 event. President Bush is there. He's cracking jokes. Nancy Pelosi, Barbara Lee, Bono. There was a, a congressional delegation of bipartisan from both sides of the aisle went to South Africa. Things were looking good. You don't want to ever say something's a slam dunk, but it, it, there was a fair amount of confidence. In May... The Heritage Foundation publishes a report that contains false allegations, really demonstrably false allegations that PEPFAR is paying for abortion. And it isn't. And we have to be really clear about this. And and it would have been great if if members of Congress had stepped forward and debunked this this early on. But be that it is may, as it may, Heritage says, you know, hey, this this program is is, you know, actually doing that thing you all were worried about you know, way back in the day. Um, and it isn't. It's not paying for abortion. It's not promoting abortion. And its allegations are so spurious that, that in fact, there's sort of a sense of let's just, nobody could possibly take this seriously. You know, and I'm saying this amongst PEPFAR watchers, the ones that I'm speaking to, let's just let, you know, let's just let it go. Well, it, it doesn't die down, right? And then in June, Representative Chris Smith um, sends a dear colleague letter where he repeats and amplifies these these false allegations. You know, he names um, a trio of groups which received funding under Trump, um, whose funding has declined. He cites specific language in the PEPFAR strategy that is around protecting the ability of young women at risk of or living with HIV to access health services, which means looking at age of consent laws. It means looking at laws around, around age of marriage, you know, a lot of things that drive young people's risk. Um, and he says that this is code for abortion. And as a result of these false allegations, there is no evidence to support what he's saying. And there's actually a lot of evidence to the contrary. It's demonstrably false. Um, we are now in a situation where the clean reauthorization 
there's not as clear a path as there was. I really think that there still is very much a path to it. But these questions surrounding it have have prompted, again, across the spectrum, the strange bedfellows spectrum um, of people who have worked on and, and watched PEPFAR over the years a response saying, hey, no, wait a minute. Please don't jeopardize this program. And, and it's in jeopardy in two ways. One is simply that it wouldn't be reauthorized, but it would instead be, be done via appropriation. And you can appropriate $5 billion, or um, at this point, I think it's closer to, to six, six and change or seven for five years. But you, then you lose the legislative structure and scaffolding that I talked about that's so important. So appropriation, you, you lose all the controls that actually everybody, including conservatives, really liked around what PEPFAR is and what it drives for. Or, and this is what Representative Smith is proposing, you could do a one-year reauthorization. You have to remember that these plans, these programs are long-term, they're ongoing, they're getting increasingly focused on interventions that can achieve epidemic control, can really bring HIV, epidemic levels of HIV to an end, and that a one-year authorization disrupts a proven planning cycle. It shakes confidence in in country governments who are trying to figure out whether the U.S. is in it for the long haul or not. And it also really undermines our ability to leverage and work with investments in laboratory infrastructure, in sequencing and diagnostics that support PEPFAR and HIV, but also really support pandemic preparedness and outbreak response. So a one-year reauthorization is destabilizing. Um, An appropriation removes all the controls and really sort of, you know, potentially changes PEPFAR from this terrific combination of structure, strategy, and accountability to something much more similar to some foreign aid programs that haven't shown the kind of success. Or you're talking about potentially opening up the legislation, right, and having having a discussion about changing language within it. And if that happens, then then there's going to be a range of suggestions about what else should be put in or taken out of the program. And it really then likely becomes does it need not, but it likely becomes a sort of political, you know, sparring match. And the beautiful thing about this program is that it has been, it has been above that kind of politics since for 20 years, and it really needs to continue to be. Yeah, so thinking about the impact of what would happen if PEPFAR isn't reauthorized, I was wondering if you could speak about how PEPFAR fits into the United States' evolving view of national security and foreign policy. I know this year the uh, USAID has talked about becoming part of the national security focus of the U.S. government and incorporating soft power and foreign aid with you know, national security and foreign policy. Wondering if you could speak about how PEPFAR fits into that, and if it doesn't, why it hasn't or why it's not fitting into that role of health security. So, PEPFAR is a huge partner in in providing a huge development partner in the countries where it operates in terms of supporting HIV services, but that's also paying healthcare worker salaries. It's supporting laboratory activities, supporting surveillance, supporting supply chains, procurement, commodities, and and in the course of forging those relationships, it is a part of the American identity in those countries. PEPFAR is by legislation um, housed in the State Department. The person at its helm is an ambassador level position. And at the country level, the person at the helm is the ambassador or the the highest ranking diplomat in the country. And so PEPFAR has always been, and this is by design, a program that reflects 
the extent to which health investments are part of diplomacy and are part of soft power, if you will, right? And so the PEPFAR investment in that light has, has always been a driver of our relationships with the countries where the program operates, often for good, right? Often, you know, um, you look at, at surveys of, of perceptions of America and perceptions of the government um, among citizens and people who live in the countries where PEPFAR operates, and they're, they're very favorable, and a lot of that is tied to PEPFAR. Um, it can get complex when, when the U.S. government takes a stand or, or reacts to punitive laws or policies like the Anti-Homosexuality Act in Uganda. So it's not always that the governments perceive PEPFAR as being fully aligned with the government mission, but the fact that there's so much investment via PEPFAR means that the U.S. government has leverage. It has, it has a way to talk and say, hey, we need you to attend to the ways that your programs or your services are violating rights or putting people at risk or maybe undermining your long-term development goals. So it's got some leverage, it's got some soft power, and it's also got investments in systems and staff and infrastructure and supply chains that are fundamental to health security and pandemic preparedness. If you have lab systems that work and community health workers that are trusted and supply chains that function, you have a better chance of addressing outbreaks and containing them and identifying them than you do if you don't have those things. PEPFAR wasn't designed to be a health security program. So I'm talking about sort of collateral benefits or diagonal benefits. There's been caution around configuring PEPFAR as a health security and HIV overall as a health security advancing program. Global Fund has also grappled with the ways that it does and doesn't want to relate to and embrace pandemic preparedness. I think one of the signs of the direction the U.S. government is going in is the recent formal launch of a new bureau that at the Department of State that elevates Ambassador Nkengasong, who's in charge of PEPFAR, to a, a dual-hatted position that also tasks the person in that role, which is currently Ambassador John Nkengasong, the former head of Africa CDC, with global health security and diplomacy, a global health security and diplomacy portfolio. PEPFAR is the other part of his job, so it's not merging them, but it is really recognizing that PEPFAR is a cornerstone and a foundation, a platform for health diplomacy brief and portfolio that really does tackle health security issues um, head on. So it's it's got explicit ways that it contributes and indirect benefits is what I would say. And I do think that part of part of a longer term strategic vision, which I hope the Biden administration can deliver, is really continuing to break down silos between humanitarian assistance, which is how PEPFAR is conceived, and, and health security issues, which are which are often sort of put in a separate bucket. And can you explain what the Global Fund is? Uh, you mentioned earlier that it's funded primarily or significantly by the United States. Is it run by the United States? Who is it run by? The Global Fund um, to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria was um, set up in, called for in 2001, launched in 2002, and it was another response to what was the calamity, the moral catastrophe and the calamity of the global plague of untreated HIV, of AIDS, and, and the inequalities in access to antiretrovirals. And, and there needed to be a mechanism for paying for medications and um, financing programs. And the Global Fund was, is 
a multilateral model. It's got a secretariat that's based in Geneva. Um, it takes contributions from governments, from philanthropies, from the private sector. It has a board that, that's constituted by representatives from those sectors. Uh, civil society, people impacted by the three diseases are represented. And the funds are distributed on the basis of um, calls for proposals. And those proposals are developed by a consultative mechanism and ideally, the process is a, um, a consultative mechanism at the country level that brings in the, the perspectives and the point of view and the priorities of people impacted by diseases, faith-based communities, a range. So it's a multi-sectoral planning process, which was very different from a kind of top-down development aid or foreign aid um, assistance model that says, we're going to give you these funds to do these things because they're the things that are most important. You know, this is saying countries are gonna say what they wanna do and how they wanna do it, and that's gonna go undergo technical review. And if it has technical merit, it gets funded and it's the country priorities in an ideal world. So the Global Fund comes into the scene prior to PEPFAR and is actually, um, I would say, sort of part of the wind at the president's back in terms, President Bush's back in terms of launching PEPFAR. He wants to do something, he knows he wants to do something, his advisors do not want, and he does not want to put all of the U.S. resources into a multilateral fund where the decisions about how it's going to be spent and the assessments of, of progress are not ones that the U.S. can drive or control, right? And so, so you have PEPFAR emerge, which is sort of a bilateral rejoinder to the global fund. And, you know, it's a really interesting moment in foreign aid history in a way, because um, what if the U.S. had put all of its resources and its, and its weight behind a multilateral bottom up grassroots funding mechanism, you know, and people still think through that and still wonder. And at the same time, many, many people and have have confirmed or have their own versions of what I experienced when I moved to Uganda in 2004, which was that the PEPFAR programs were able to move really quickly because they were bilateral and because they they were US driven and they were you know for better or for worse able to take decisions and choose partners and stand up systems that just didn't exist and they started saving lives really quickly um in Uganda which is where I was compared to the global fund funded programs and again just because all of this we are having right now pepfar is in jeopardy because of issues that have have surrounded it since its inception they were receiving faxes at the White House about the Global Fund from Phyllis Schlafly and the Eagle Forum saying the Global Fund is a slush fund for abortion. The Global Fund is a slush fund for South Sudan, North Korea, and Planned Parenthood, right? So, so there's always been this idea that if we, that funds are fungible, that foreign aid funds are fungible. And the best way to, to sort of ensure they don't go to things that conservatives don't want them to go to is to put them through bilateral channels. PEPFAR is precisely that bilateral channel, which is why it's it's really important that we we find a way to walk back from this 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 precipice that the program has reached. Yes. Yeah, so thinking about if PEPFAR is not reauthorized, do you see the US transitioning to using the global fund? Or what would be the impact on the ground if it's not reauthorized and uh, you don't see that five year reauthorization continue? So the U.S. contribution to the Global Fund is in the U.S. leadership on HIV, TB, and Malaria Act, which has had different names over the years, but that's, that's more or less the, the, give or take a couple words, is the name of the original legislation. So you 
lose all of the stipulations around our AIDS funding if it's not reauthorized. You also, you know, lose one of the things that's in that legislation that is that is has been, I think, you know, seen as as a positive. I think by by conservatives or people that are worried about multilaterals for the the again, none of these funds, none of these allegations about slush funds, things like that, bear out if you press on them. They just don't. The countries that are hard hit by HIV, many, though not all of them, have extremely restrictive policies around abortions and laws around abortion on their own. So so these these allegations, they just don't bear out. But the Leadership Act specifies that the U.S. contribution can, I believe, can be no more than 30% of the overall total funds in the global fund. So it caps it. It has some language around the U.S. contribution versus the the total contribution. It it has some language around how much the executive of the global fund can make. So it's got a bunch of things that sort of ring fence or curtail U.S. or right size U.S. engagement. That also goes out the window. So the so the who's going to get money? How we're going to funnel our HIV funds really becomes a kind of you know it's up for grabs a bit. But but an equivalent contribution to the global fund will no more pass muster in in this climate, this bipartisan climate, than it would have 20 years ago. And in fact, it's it's even more of a faint possibility, a non-starter today than it is than it was 20 years ago. Uh, and I think my last question for you is, if PEPFAR is not reauthorized, you've kind of mentioned this, what happens to the people who are currently on treatment? Do Will they still have access to the antiretrovirals or would that go away relatively quickly? So I don't, I don't really like to think about it, okay? I mean, I think that what we have right now is a few things. One thing is that whether you have HIV or you don't have HIV and whether you live in a PEPFAR country or, or you live in the U.S. or you live in a non-PEPFAR country, I would really say it's not an exaggeration that, that all of our lives depend on a clean five-year reauthorization of PEPFAR. Not necessarily that it's a matter of life and death in those terms, but that this is a program that is the most successful U.S. global health investment in American history hands down, full stop. And it is an investment in long-term strategy-driven, results-driven financing to fight a pandemic that was a health security risk when it started. It was a global health security risk when, when President Bush enacted it. So if we lose that, if we dismantle that, if we weaken it, frankly, even, which is what a one-year or an appropriation would do, if we do anything except this five-year reauthorization, we are essentially handing away, handing over, or, or just grievously weakening one of the greatest assets that exists right now in, in the U.S., but I would say in the global global health security endeavor in terms of information partners, mobilized communities that know how to build programs and services that, that do detect and effectively react to and respond to outbreaks, pandemics, and, and ongoing colliding calamities like HIV, tuberculosis, if it's a cholera outbreak in malaria, an MPOX outbreak in Nigeria, Ebola in West Africa. So the idea that you would, you would trade that away over, over 
false allegations for a program that's already protected against abortion is, is so high risk for, for all of us. That's, that's one thing that, that this really should, everyone should take this personally and, and urge members of Congress on both sides of the aisle to find that pathway back to the clean five-year reauthorization. For people living with HIV, PEPFAR has for years been handing over and trying to partner more with governments to hand over provision of HIV services to governments and really encouraging domestic resource mobilization and domestic contributions to finance HIV programs. However, these countries that we're talking about right now are experiencing crippling debt. They have not bounced back economically from from the shocks related to COVID-19. They're also facing colliding crises with climate disasters, conflict in some cases, instability, um, and a range of competing priorities around their health system investments. In an ideal world, you would have other ways, other program services. A lot of the services themselves now sit in national hospitals and national facilities. So the programs don't shut down overnight, but the resources for it become very unstable. And the as does, right, the global fund grants are also out there and they're also made but future global fund replenishment becomes more of an issue, I think, if we don't know where the U.S. government contribution is going to sit. And you do have situations, and I have already had friends, people living with HIV, express their fear and their concern to me about what will happen if PEPFAR ends. So you really do have people who remember what it was like before there were antiretrovirals, who thought they were going to die and leave their children orphaned, who've been on treatment for 20 years, who have never lost that sense of what happens if I lose this? What happens if this goes away? And, and that is a very real and fair question. Well, Emily Blass, thank you so much for joining us today and for this very interesting and eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much, Anna. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pachia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Gnome Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thank you for listening.